Manitoba Morning by Rick Newfeld. Rick Newfeld, yep. I like it. Had uh, dinner with Rick Newfeld once when I was a kid. Really? Someone that you know that knows me is Rick Newfeld's cousin. I'll tell you off air. <laughs> Not for public consumption? Just one of our loyal listeners okay. that you've had interaction with okay. that often sends me good wishes through you. Oh, interesting. I think you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I think I'm. I think maybe. Yes. Maybe. Anyway, we'll talk about that uh, later. Not not to do the inside baseball thing, but yes, I can remember as soon as you played that song, I'm like, that's Rick Newfeld. I remember having supper with him when I was about nine years old. I think we had deer or something like that. Cool. It's the only time I had wild game. Oh. Yes. Do you remember whether you liked it or not? Oh, I'm sure I didn't. <laughs> You're sure you did it? Oh, I'm fussy. You know me well enough. I'm fussy as it comes when it comes to food. So, mm. Mm. okay. Mm. There you go. So, happy Tuesday. Yeah, happy Tuesday. Uh, we just saw on Global News Morning Taz Stewart from Poolin's Pest Control and Hal talked to him yesterday because we'd been wondering aloud in recent uh, weeks what's going on with the wasps. Why are we seeing them earlier than usual? Because we typically don't see them until. The fall, but I know you've seen them. I think they chased you off of your deck, didn't they? They did. We had a couple of them, and uh, one of our guests is allergic to wasps. So oh, my God. So we moved God. inside. So okay, yeah. That cut our deck time down a little bit the other night. Yeah, and uh, Taz, was he basically confirmed what we were kind of theorizing. Maybe oh, it was really? Just, yeah, it was their food source was delayed because there was no precipitation, but now that we've had some rain and there's flowers and dandelions and stuff like that starting to... Pop up, I guess the, he says you should see less of them now. But Good. they've been getting caller, they've been getting calls at Poolins sooner than usual for the wasps. So and like big wasps too that I've been noticing. So kind of scary looking demons. So, I hate them. I do too. I think most of us do. Uh, so that's good. It wasn't a figment of our imagination. I always like when the experts confirm what we suspected. Yeah. You know, there's a little validation there, but it's always nice to know that you're on the right track when discussing these things. I'm flipping through my stack of articles here because you mentioned dandelions. Yep. Everybody's favorite flower. Yep. Or dandelions, as I like to call them, to (laughs) make them sound a little bit more romantic. Dandelions. Dandelions. Tim Brooke, our colleague at uh, Global Television, did a story on this yesterday. A sea of yellow, how Manitoba's cosmetic pesticide ban has led to a dandelion takeover. Yes. Sea of yellow, blanketing boulevards and lawns across our province as the provincial government decides what to do about a pesticide ban. It promised to review... Um, well, years ago, as when the when the progressive conservatives uh, came in as government, they promised to take a look at this ban, and they continue to review it. They want to make sure they do the right thing. Yeah, well, Tim, uh, I mean, we heard uh, Tim and Jeff's newscast at six o'clock, and one of the things he pointed out is that consumers are saying that it's too expensive and it's ineffective. I am not a homeowner. I haven't had to pull a dandelion since 2013. Which I I don't miss doing that. No. What do you say about uh, the the pesticide ban in terms of your lawn care? Well, I I'm fortunate enough to have a service that does an outstanding job that I haven't seen really seen a dandelion in on my lawn for four years. Okay. Uh, but 
I know that for some, the cost is prohibitive to have these services because they've had to alter how they charge based on the new formula that they're forced to use that's more environmentally friendly. There's a challenge there. And so some people have had to scrap their weed control programs altogether because it's uh, not as economical as, as maybe it was four or five years ago. So I know that's a challenge for a lot of people. Well, and I, this it reminded me that I went into my stack of paper and found an article that I printed back on May 8th. This was from the Weather Network, and the headline is, Got Dandelions or Dandelions? Here's why you shouldn't get rid of them. Really? And they say that it, it says they may not be the preference uh, if they were given other flowers, but uh, the bees like the dandelions because they're laden with yellow pollen. And I guess it's crucial in the spring because bees are hungry and it's a difficult time for them because they've eaten through a lot of their stores of honey. Uh, now, this again, this was when the temperatures were a bit lower. So when they come out, when it's around 10 degrees, they start looking for food. Hmm. So if it says if your lawn is crawling with dandelions, it's okay to keep them for a little while. Because That's interesting. It feeds the bees. And the bees, of course, as we all learned from the uh, the classic film, uh, The Happening by M. Night Shyamalan, uh, if the bees go awry, then everything fails. Everything everything is in question, right? If the bees fail, we our demise is soon to follow yep. is sort of the theory there, right? Yeah. I can remember being in Cincinnati about 12 years ago, meeting a horticulturalist from France, and he refused. Like, he said, I come to America, and they want me to cut my dandelion. Like, he says, I love them. They're beautiful. You know, like, <laughs> so his whole lawn was dandelions, and he was determined to change America in terms of their attitudes toward dandelions. Wow. I, I, I don't think he's going to win that. <laughs> Do you think if we counted dandelions as if they were classified as flowers and Maybe. not weeds? Maybe. I I don't know. Are they that pretty? Uh, no. Not well, really. I wonder. I mean, because when I, I know I when hear I was what you're a kid, saying. I hear what you're saying. When I was a kid, I thought they were pretty. And you go pick them, and then I'd bring them into my mom, and she'd say, oh, thank you. And then I, I eventually realized she was just faking it and thought, you know, we were dumb for bringing her dandelions. But, uh, yeah, I know that. I know what. When the, I think they look okay for a second, but I know what's coming after, and it's just they leave these big sort of green stains on your lawn. Green stains, and then the white seeds, and they spread. And my problem with the fact that the city hasn't found a way to control these things one way or another is that they're you know they're really not a great neighbor. Because for everybody that does invest and does work hard to keep their lawn dandelion free, doesn't matter because the city has way more real estate that's growing these things yeah. and so then you're you're kind of doubly up against it ride sharing could soon be moving outside city limits as tap car announces plans to set up shop in steinbach and global news reporter austin siragusa explains why the ride sharing service is expanding to the automobile city it's one of the fastest growing communities in manitoba and now, Steinbach is where the fastest growing ride-sharing company in Winnipeg is looking to set up shop. We uh, started to take a look at different communities in and around uh, Winnipeg uh, for, for opportunities for expansion. And uh, Steinbach had the bylaws in place to allow for ride-share services. And it has one of the largest, uh, fastest growing populations in Manitoba. Their fleet of drivers in Winnipeg has grown from a dozen to over 150 in the first two and a half months alone. 
but as popular as the ride-sharing company is in Winnipeg, in Steinbach, it's not high on the radar. Tap car? No. Uh, no. I have not. I've heard of Tap car, but don't know much about it. Global News reached out to two taxi companies already working in Steinbach. They declined to comment, but said they welcome any competition. Some residents are ready for a new set of wheels on the road. You don't have to worry about parking and don't have to drink and drive. So yeah, I'd use it. And as for Tapcar expanding to more cities across Manitoba, that's still on the table. We would love to go into Brandon. We uh, like to get them to have the bylaws in place to allow uh, rideshare service to be offered. Austin Suragusa, Global News. Now Richard Kluge and Christian O'Mell yesterday afternoon on the news on 680 CJOB spoke to University of Manitoba transportation expert David Duvall and asked if the expansion of Tapcar means we will not see Uber or Lyft in Winnipeg anytime soon. It's all about the insurance model that we have here in Manitoba. I suspect that's most of it. A part of it might also be the size of the market. I mean, they do exist in other markets that are roughly the same size as Winnipeg, but we have different regulatory uh, approaches to things like insurance. Is there any validity to the theory that they see Tapcar has already been here for a few months, they've got the market, and they don't want to, they look at it and say, ah, you know what, it's not worth the trouble? I doubt that very much. Uber's a, Uber's a pretty big player internationally. I think they can look at some of these uh, smaller upstarts like Tapcar and even some other ones and say, no, nah, we can we can rest on our brand name and, and trade on that. What is it about insurance that Uber and Lyft are saying... No, we're not going to come into the market because of this. In in other markets in Canada and even in the United States, the idea is that a driver has supplemental coverage by a company like Uber. So if you and I were to drive or any three of us were to drive, the minute we say on our Uber app as a driver that we're available to take rides, then the insurance coverage that Uber provides kicks in. We don't have that particular model here uh, mm. in Manitoba. So I guess we've been hearing for months that both sides are trying to work this out. Mm. What incentive is it there for MPI to want to get this done? Well, that's a big political question because it fundamentally asks the question, what do we want for auto insurance in Manitoba? I think it's a discussion that should be have, should be had. It's, it's certainly not an illegitimate question. It's certainly one we should think about. U of M transportation expert David Duvall speaking with Richard Cluche and Christian O'Malley yesterday afternoon on Tapcar's expansion into Steinbeck. And uh, just as I was leaving Club Region Event Center on Saturday night, met a guy from Minnesota who's in town, and he asked uh, best way to get downtown, wanted to go to the PAL. And he said, do you have Uber here? And we explained that we have Tapcar. And he said, oh, that's weird that you don't have Uber, blah, 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 insurance, whatever. And uh, he... he I said, or, you know, you could do tap car and download the app, or you can walk 50 yards and get a cab that is sitting right there. What did he do? He downloaded the app. Wow. He says that he thinks cabs are sketchy. Sketchy? So, uh, I got the cab. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was humming another Blondie song earlier this morning. We on the same wave? That's actually the song you were humming. Is it? (laughs) 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 You're always listening. That's behind the glass. Jerry always making sure we have the right music coming into a segment. I'm Greg. He's Brett. I opened up my browser this morning, and typically the first website I go to is globalnews.ca to see what we're covering. And uh, the headline screams at me. FBI asks everyone in the world to reboot their router to stop the spread of Russian malware. What? 
Just a small whole, favor. The whole population of planet Earth. Yep, just a small, small favor. The FBI believes Russian computer hackers have compromised hundreds of thousands of computers around the world and are advising everyone to reboot their routers to prevent the spread of malware. 7.6 uh, billion, by the way, world population. I know, there aren't, I know there are not 7.6 <laughs> billion routers, but no. I mean, this also counts for your wireless router at home, right? That's right. They, like every device, they're concerned that they've breached all the uh, remote uh, remote programming software and remote programming accessibility uh, that is apparently really difficult to turn off because uh, your service provider typically needs to get in there, right, yep. to uh, to do common work, especially if you call in, you've got a prog- uh, problem, they'll say, oh, I'm going to take things over now, I need to see what's going on. That's how they do it. Yeah, and they say that by rebooting the router, it doesn't... What it does is it, it it sort of allows the router to clear its memory, and then it just sort of uh, gets rid of the infection. They're not saying it's a cure for the infection, but it just means that if they want to, they'll have, they have to reinfect the router. They have to attack again. So by rebooting it, it just kind of clears the memory and gets rid of whatever's there. Right on. So uh, you may want to do that this morning. Do the old uh, unplug, wait 30 seconds, plug it in again, and... Uh just reboot things. It's a pain in the neck, but I don't know. The FBI, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be asking this if they if they didn't really need the solid. And the headline, just when you said that headline <laughs> this morning, I thought, are you on the onion right now? <laughs> That's it's, exactly what you said. It sounds so, it almost sounds sarcastic. <laughs> it does. FBI asks everyone in the world. It's so dramatic. <laughs> it's almost to the point where you, you bypass it, right? Yeah. Because, Really? Are they really? Yeah. Next article. No. Uh, Take note of this. You'll want to uh, take heed because, as we know from another story yesterday, uh, it's becoming increasingly likely that at some point we are going to become victims of some sort of hack online with regard to technology, whether it's our bank or our home router. And in the case of what happened, uh, what we learned yesterday, it were two banks in Canada that are now trying to clean up a little bit of a mess. Yes, that's right. Two Canadian banks are in cleanup mode after fraudsters may have accessed certain personal and financial information of up to 90,000 customers. Bank of Montreal says hackers believed to be from outside Canada contacted the bank Sunday, claiming to have the personal information of fewer than 50,000 customers and threatened to make it public. CIBC's direct banking brand Simplify, uh, no, is it Simply Financial? Simply Financial. Thank you. Also said fraudsters may have electronically accessed some personal and account information for about 40,000 of its clients. Richard Cloutier and Christian O'Mell spoke to tech expert David Papp about what you should do to keep your online information safe. Data breaches are on the rise uh, throughout, and I think right now we're finally actually getting to hear publicly from some of them that probably otherwise would have been kept quiet as much as possible from the media. So if you are a customer of Bank of Montreal or CIBC's Simply Financial, what do you need to know? Well, uh, they are going to notify the customers that are affected, so they will reach out to you. Regardless of that, though, I would be reviewing my bank activity on my accounts and changing my online banking passwords as so you, you want to make sure that you're changing that. Because if that information was compromised, you want to make sure that the hackers don't have it. 
And uh, your password, I'm told, shouldn't be something very easy. It really should be <laughs> a lot more difficult. Uh, and find methods and ways to come up with a password that you would remember, but others couldn't figure out. Absolutely. You come up with a system to remember. Maybe it's the first letter of uh, your favorite song, you know, of the title of every word. Um, there's, there's different ways of doing that. But you also have to make sure your password is not the same as what you use on other accounts. So case in point, this account gets compromised and they have that access. So they're going to go and try that on all online accounts. So you want to make sure that you do have different passwords. So what other things should we be keeping in mind when we want to protect our information? You want to review your account activity as much as possible. You probably, a lot of these uh, sites have additional levels of security that you can engage. Now, I know it's not convenient. I know people are like, uh, you know, I, I just want to be able to access this quickly. But the more convenient it is for you, the more convenient it is for somebody else to compromise. So when they have those things called two-factor two authentication or it sends you a code or whatever, you should be enabling that, especially on things like online banking. And last but not least, my recommendation is for all those online purchases that you make uh, that you're, you're not quite sure about, but you're worried that people might grab your credit card, go and get yourself a second credit card, one with a low limit, and use that one for all the questionable online purchases and when you travel and when you're abroad, you should be using that second credit card. When can you tell that something is obviously a fraudster out to get you on the internet? Wow, that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> There's people always trying. They're going to always send you those emails that, that we call them phishing emails where they're they pretending to be somebody else they aren't, and they want you to click on links or open attachments that you're, you shouldn't be. Um, you're, you're also going to be, um, you have to be very wary when somebody tells you to change your password. And if you do, make sure that you're going directly to the banking website yourself. You're not clicking on a link that they provide for you to do that. And you should be reviewing your account activity. On my online banking, I've enabled something called alerts, and a lot of banks support it now, where any time a transaction is done on your credit card or on your bank account, it sends you an email or a text message. I think that's a good thing because it gives you visibility right away if something is happening on your account. You know, I'm not an old-fashioned guy, but it makes me yearn for the good old days when I had to go to the bank before 4 o'clock on Friday to get any money. Yeah. You know, just walk around with some cash. They're out yeah. to get you, man. I know. Every time I, I log on to do the, the banking on my cell phone, uh, I'm a little reluctant to do it. And I, I don't use public Wi-Fi because we've spoken to countless tech experts on this radio station who all recommend against it. They don't say don't do it. But they, they do very sort of strongly advise, you know what, public Wi-Fi, probably not. You're better off on your network yes. than the public Wi-Fi. And I actually know this wasn't public Wi-Fi, but I stayed at a, I mean, the, the golf uh, buddies the for the, the annual Laker Classic Golf Tournament. We were at a, a resort that I'm not going to name at this point, and there was, well, we, we had access to Wi-Fi, and one of my friends was hacked at the resort. He had his, his bank account had been cleaned out, so he had to deal with that for a few days. 
It's the first you've told me of this. Yeah, I just remembered it. My just, have, word. just talking about this now jogged my memory. Holy man. Or not, I can't remember if it was bank account or if it was credit card. But anyway, well, there was a substantial amount that had been racked up, and he spent a few weeks dealing with that. So it's, uh, it's dangerous, and it makes me worry, and I don't want to have to go back to tucking cash underneath my pillow or something, or a hole in the mattress. Some people are doing that, though. They're going back to that. Good morning to you. I'm Greg. He's Brett. Tristan Field-Jones in for a vacationing channel. Eva Dell joins us in studio now. Kelly Moore is here along with Behind the Glass, Jerry. And by the way, we'll have a concert announcement in about mm, 10, 10 minutes time? 17 minutes. Oh, I can't do math. Uh, 59. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks, Brett. Sorry. <laughs> so, no, what are you apologizing for? Well, we know who the brains is behind this operation. Oh, there's no question about it. No question about it. And at 745, this I know for sure. Yes. The Mexican ambassador to Canada is in Winnipeg. He will join us uh, via telephone to talk about the relationship between Canada and Mexico, NAFTA negotiations, uh, etc. So that'll be uh, an interesting talk as long as Brett is doing all the interviewing. Oh, I don't know about that. But uh, I do know that this certainly caught my attention today when uh, you and Tristan mentioned it. The headline at Engadget.com reads, scientists invented a real life flux capacitor, but not for time travel. So that means you won't be able to go back to 1955 and hit on your mom while you get your dad (laughs) to punch you in the face. Back to the future. <laughs> the flux capacitor. That was the magic, right? That allowed uh, Michael J. Fox's character to go back in time. What was his name? Marty McFly. Marty, Marty McFly. Not magic. Science. Oh, science. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> science, Marty. Science. <laughs> so the question today is, if there was a fictional device that you wanted to see invented, which one would it be? Tristan? Got to start. You, you, this was your idea, so you must have something. Oh, there was uh, there was a lot to choose from. Almost anything out of Star Trek would be great, uh, because it seems as if almost everything in that universe is borderline magic. But Ooh, if, if I teleportation, had to, teleportation. What do they call it in Star Trek? Uh, Beam me up. Yeah, I believe they it's a teleporter. Tra- teleporter transporters. Okay, teleporter. I think All right. is what they call it. Um, and they have the replicators too, where you can basically just request whatever food you want, and there it is. But I think the one device I would love to see invented would be a, uh, the out of Star Trek, the warp drive, the ability to travel to other planets and to uh, explore other areas. I mean, we know how huge our galaxy is and how huge huge our universe is, and it would take us with our current technology tens of thousands of years to get to our nearest star. So I think that would be a device that'd be really cool uh, to to just to see what we'd find out beyond our solar system. Do you think it would look like it does in Star Wars where it's just uh, all the light is sort of... It's like a tunnel of light. I have no idea what it would like. What it would look like, Brett. <laughs> you know, they they say about the tunnel of light. It's usually yeah. uh, the last journey there. So or the I'm train. not sure. I'm not sure. Or the train coming uh, straight at you in the tunnel, Jerry. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of the food replicator. That would have been cool. But now that uh, Tristan's taking that, I think that uh, the toast knife from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where you, it's like a laser knife and you just cut your bread and it turns into toast as you're cutting. Oh man, <laughs> that'd be so convenient. <laughs> that would be. That's great. But that's a step back as well because that means you're going back to a time when they didn't cut the bread for you. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, yeah. One step on, back, two forward, right? Does it work on bagels and English muffins too? Absolutely. 
I like oh, it. Kelly sold on it. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly's, Kelly's on eBay right now trying to find one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, it's not as glorious as Tristan's or even as creative as Jerry's, but especially at this time of the year, I would like some kind of a device. It could work overnight. It could work during the day. I really don't care. Uh, but kind of like one of those automatic vacuums that go through your house and uh, clean up everything, I would like something that would go through the neighborhood yards and select dandelions and ragweeds. Nice. Just have them all picked and deposited into a yardage waste bag. They could put it at the end of my driveway for all I care. Nice. We're, we're probably not far off from that when well, you think about it, Well, they have lawnmowers right? like that, right? Yeah. Like the iRobot or whatever. What are, what are the Roomba? Is that the, the, the vacuum cleaner? That's the vacuum, cleaner? yeah. Well, they've got uh, lawn lawnmowers like that now, so maybe we're not too far off. From what you're no. contemplating there, Kelly. So it's I not think, fantasy, I think, you, I think you should quit your job and uh, dedicate the next 20 years of your life making that reality. You just want reality. me gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Goodbye, Moore. What about you? Well, mm, always go to the movies, right? Yep. Michael Keaton had that movie in uh, 96, Multiplicity. I could use more of me. Oh. I, I don't, not on yeah. the air, not, not, not for any of you, but for me to get my chores done, it would be nice to have one work me, one play me, and one chore me. That would be nice. Or I had to think back to the John D. McDonald book that turned into a 1980 movie starring Pam Dauber for Mork and Mindy and Robert Hayes, who was pretty funny back in the day. The girl, the gold watch, and everything. And the gold watch could stop time. Cool. Yes, it was nice. a very, very, very bad made-for-TV movie, but I loved <laughs> Pam Dauber, and any reason to talk about Pam Dauber is, is a good thing in my book. Yeah. Brett McGarry? Watch that would stop time, that'd be... Yeah, Andy, there's lots of stuff you could do. Uh, I had two things. One, I would like Iron Man's suit. <laughs> not not for the weapon part. I don't need the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the cannons, uh, the laser cannons. Uh, but just to be able to fly would be fun in that yeah. suit. And because it's ma- it's such a strong suit for when I crash, I'd be okay because I'm clumsy, right? I'm just put, picturing putting it down on my shopping list. Broccoli... Uh, some mashed potato, uh, and Iron, Iron Man suit. Can you also, yeah. and the second thing, and can you also add to your list, flubber? Oh, flubber, yes, please, uh, I'll get some flubber. Why do you want, fl- what do you want what flubber? What is flubber? <laughs> flubber, that's, uh, what was it, the absent, was it the absent-minded professor? Absent, I think so, yes. yes. Yeah. It's a uh, flying rubber, wasn't it? Or yeah, something? it's that stuff that they put on the, the bottom of the, the shoes of the basketball players. I, I've never been able to dunk a basketball because I'm not athletic, so I would like the flubber to help me dunk a basketball before I die. <laughs> <laughs> could you put it inside a golf ball and Ooh, make it go really oh, far? You probably could. Love that. Hey, yeah. Well, I'm thinking back to the Robin Williams uh, movie, which came out, I don't know, it would have been, I guess, 20 years ago by now. Well, and all the applications that they had for, I mean, they put it on the shoes of basketball players, but geez, they put it on almost anything, the flubber material, if you will. It's only good if you're the only one that can have it, though, right? Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. It's yeah. like when you phone about your lost suitcase and you go, yeah, it's black, made by Samsonite, you know the one. It's like, yeah, I can't remember what movie where they say, yeah, in this, uh, in this, in this heinous idea where they would like to make money on making these things, they made more than one black <laughs> Samsonite suitcase. So it's only cool if you're the only one that has it. It's a 1961 film, by the way, the original uh, from Walt Disney, and it starred. Uh, hang on a second here. Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you can text us. Eve says, lightsaber. D- hands oh, down, lightsaber. Yeah. 204 780 only cool if you're the only one that has it. You know, there are a few 
musicians, I think, that have that kind of instantly recognizable sound. But there's no mistake when you hear any of this guy's songs. Couldn't agree with you more, Brett McGarry. The concert announcement, John Mellencamp, Bell MTS Place, Tuesday, October 23rd. Tickets on sale this Friday, June 1st, 10 a.m. through Ticketmaster. There is a pre-sale happening Thursday on Ticketmaster, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. The password is, quite simply, Melon Camp. It's the Sad Clowns and Hillbillies Tour. Again, tickets on sale this Friday. He was at the concert hall last time he was here. I know. And I was trying to figure out the last time I saw him in concert. March 14th, 1988. Wow. 30 years ago. How do you remember the date? I looked it up. Oh. But I knew it was around 19. I knew it was in the in the spring of 19. Will he be able to sing that song, Jerry? Because that song you were playing, that's from John Cougar. Is he allowed to? I don't think John Cougar lets John Mellencamp play his music. Yeah, I think he has to play, pay a royalty or something, doesn't he? I'm not sure how that works. Anyway, uh... 30 years ago to that point had been one of the top concerts I had ever seen, and it remains probably in my top 10. It was the first time I'd been at a concert where essentially the entire Winnipeg arena stood for essentially the entire show. It was spectacular. I know it's 30 years later, and the chances of him being that good are probably not terrific, but I suspect he still puts on one hell of a show. Well, and he also describes his voice now because he, in a 60 Minutes interview, he was smoking the whole way through it, and he said... That it gives him a Miles Davis voice now. He always wanted a Miles Davis voice. So, so it's been a method. It. It's been a, a process. Or well, hang on a second. No, I've got my musicians mixed up. I oh. can't remember. It was Miles Davis. Is he plays a trumpet? Doesn't he? Uh, no, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. I need to look it up. Maybe if you know who I'm ta- who it is, you can text <laughs> us. In the meantime, we got to shift gears here. We got to head literally to literally shift gears. A road that you're not a fan of. For the most part, the South Perimeter, I'm not a fan of. Public consultations are underway for safety improvements to the South Perimeter Highway. Erica Vito is Director of Transportation Systems Planning at Manitoba Infrastructure. She joins us live now on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Erica. Good morning. Thank you for this. And uh, tell us a little bit about these consultations that are taking place. Uh, Well, we have a plan to improve safety on the South Perimeter Highway. Uh, We developed internally with the department, and now we'd like to share it with the public to hear what they think about our plan and mostly to accommodate any local issues that arise. But the plan is basically to uh, eliminate most left turns from the Perimeter Highway except at signalized intersections or interchanges. So we'd like to go and close a bunch of median openings and service access roads uh, to allow more free-flowing conditions. How many vehicles access the highway every day? It's about 30,000 vehicles a day, so it's a very, very busy highway. It's a mix of traffic. You see long-haul trucks, commercial trucks, and commuters all mixing together in the lane. So it's a very busy, uh, well-used highway. We've long lamented uh, the fact that there aren't more interchanges on the perimeter highway, but I, I was shocked to learn that there are 26 different access points on the highway uh, where there are only a stop sign directing traffic, not an overpass or lights. I, I was shocked that there were that many access points that are un, uncontrolled, Erica. Yeah, we've uh, uh, for years we've allowed the highway to help the region develop, but the, the region has developed so much over the last few years that traffic on the highway is just growing so quickly, and there's so many vehicles. And now we've got to do something about it because we've got some acute safety concerns at many locations because of this growth and development. 
No, what do you, there are already plans underway to, to make one adjustment at Highway 2 and 3 where there's going to be a roundabout that is added. What is the benefit of, of adding a roundabout at a busy spot like that? Well, a roundabout, um, because of the type of intersection there, there was really poor sight lines and uh, a roundabout, and it's already kind of slow-moving traffic because it's you know close to the uh, stop sign or a traffic light already. So a roundabout allows cars to, or vehicles to more seamlessly enter the intersection and make the turns that they need to make rather than this hard stop and waiting for uh, vehicles to pass at a stop sign. This allows sort of a more smooth, orderly flow, and we have found that uh, collisions have reduced drastically at roundabout-type intersections in other highway networks. So, Erica, um, you know, ultimately, personally, I'd like to see interchanges at those major intersections at St. Anne, St. Mary's, and at Route 90 on the south perimeter, uh, and probably also at Oak Bluff. But is is there any thought to that being on the drawing board? And that's part A of my question, part B, uh, went through Saskatchewan two years ago, and they've essentially created a secondary perimeter around Regina, the bypass project there, and they've realized that their perimeter, so to speak, was antiquated and there was no fixing it. So what they did was they built a bypass further south that started further east and goes further west around Regina. Is that anything that we might be contemplating? There definitely is a long-term plan in development. Um, We're starting a process this summer of consultation with uh, the public. We hired uh, WSP to do a long-term, what we're calling a long-term functional study or functional design. And basically, we're going to be looking at all the locations on the south perimeter where an interchange should be placed. And we're going to be start designing those interchanges and figuring out how to connect local traffic to them. The vision, ultimately, is to have a, a free-flowing, interstate-style freeway on the south perimeter where the only access is by interchanges where there's ramps and loops connecting vehicles, but no stop signs and no traffic lights. So that's our vision. In order to get there, we need to uh, take some steps today to start planning for that future. And and so what we'd like to do uh, today, or not today, but this uh, as soon as possible, as soon as the public uh, approves, is to um, eliminate all of those stop sign controls and start funneling traffic to a few dedicated uh, intersection locations that we think are the safer places to cross, like, for example, where there's traffic lights or interchanges currently. And in the future, we're going to be identifying where the new interchanges should be developed and figuring out ways to prioritize their development. Erica Vito, Director of Transportation Systems Planning at Manitoba Infrastructure, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. And once again, public consultations underway for safety improvements to the south perimeter. There will be a session, public session tonight, uh, starting this afternoon, in fact, from 3 to 8 p.m. at Canada Inns on Pemina Highway. And then the Oak Bluff Community Centre will host a session tomorrow from, for, or pardon me, uh, hang on a second. I got my dates wrong. This okay. is an article from yesterday. You got it. So today is Tuesday. Uh, one took place yesterday. There is a session in Oak Bluff at the community center from 4 till 8 p.m. this afternoon. And if you want to see that vision in action, head up to the northeast corner at Highway 59 and the perimeter where they've closed off to a lot of people's dismay, a ton of intersections, level crossings in between uh, Lajemodier from the perimeter up to Birds Hill. They've 
closed off a bunch of roads as a part of that new interchange there. That is the vision long term. It was Louis Armstrong, by the way. John Mellencamp says smoking gives him a Louis Armstrong voice. Okay. All right. Now it is breakfast with the Bombers, and we're joined now by our friend Michelle Lissell, Winnipeg Blue Bombers HQ. Brought to you. Good morning, Michelle. Breakfast with the Bombers brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. I was down at IGF yesterday. The place is looking as though it's ready for action, Michelle. Yeah, we're getting close. Hey, it's amazing how fast that June is upon us. And of course, the season's starting a little bit earlier this year. So players arrived a little bit earlier and there's a lot of activity going around the stadium. Everyone cleaning it up and making it look beautiful, sparkling and looking like new for our first uh, preseason game June 1st, which uh, obviously is coming up this Friday against Edmonton. We're all really excited about that. It's been a long winter, and I think everyone is ready for a little bit of football. I know you guys are big Bomber fans, so I know you'll be there cheering them on. Mm, I have to work, (laughs) but uh, I'll be there working, uh, but I don't mind doing that. I'll be cheering under my breath. How's that? Oh, that's good. good. (laughs) Now, Michelle, we wanted to learn a little bit about the game day experience. Is there anything new in terms of amenities or features, starting with the, the tailgate party? Well, the tailgate at the plaza, so just so everyone knows, if you haven't ever been, it is a great party, and that always opens two hours before kickoff, so that means this Friday it'll open at 5.30 p.m., and uh, we have we do have a couple of new uh, concession items in there. Gigi Gelati will be uh, in the tailgate, so if you like something cool to cool you down on those hot days, we'll have some uh, gelati for you. Um, and, of course, we've got music going on in the tailgate. We've got our big stage, and that's going to be one of the uh, big attractions throughout the entire season is uh, we've got a lot of bands coming in this year uh, playing at halftime and of course our home opener we've got a big band coming but also in the tailgate um, as usual we have our uh, my first bomber game so that returns so when kids come down for their first ever bomber game they can get a little bit of a certificate there granny's turkey is in the tailgate they'll be offering up burgers um smoked turkey legs um and we've got a lot of i believe we've got a smoker too so you can get some smoked meat in the tailgate this area or this um this year and a reminder too a lot of people if you haven't been in the tailgate you don't realize that if you you can come and go all throughout the entire game pretty much until the end of the third quarter so you can leave if you've got a drink already you can head out to the tailgate after uh you know at at halftime and you can come back in so you are able to move about the stadium uh with your drink so that's that's a nice little thing so the tailgate we're looking forward to it and another thing to note is that our gates this year open 60 minutes prior to kickoff last year it was 90 so we're giving you more time to enjoy all the fun that's happening in the tailgate CJOB pregame show, by the way, as well, is now going to be broadcast out of the tailgate mm-hmm. party area. Uh, what about halftime? What's planned for halftime this Friday? Uh, well, halftime this year, we've got, uh, for our game on Friday, we've got 67 little uh, soccer players, the U6 to U10, coming uh, from Manitoba Soccer Association. And so we've got, I believe it's eight teams will be out on the field, uh, entertaining fans, uh, uh, we had them last year out, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty big thrill for them after they finish a little uh, a little tournament. And our junior cheer performers, they just went through a two-day clinic at the Pinnacle Club a couple of weeks ago, and they will be performing at halftime. I think six is the youngest that will be out there. Um, so, And we also have another junior cheer clinic coming up in August that uh, kids can get involved in. And then 
in the game in August. They will be not doing halftime, but they'll be doing a sideline performance as well. So that's happening at halftime. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, as we go through the season, we're going to have a number of bands. So we're really looking forward to that. We got a lot of good feedback last year from our fans that they really liked the live music. So we're, we're going heavy with the bands this year. So we're, we're looking forward to that. All sorts of auxiliary entertainment as if the football isn't good enough. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers 12-6 and last season looking to expand on that and maybe host a Western final versus hosting a Western semifinal. No pressure at all. Michelle, I just want to circle back to something you said with regards Mm to uh, when gates open. You mentioned that there's more time this year than last year. I just wanted to to clarify something because I think I heard it one way. And I just wanted to make sure that it, it, it's, it's uh, how other folks heard it as well. Yeah, well, last year we opened 90 minutes prior to kickoff. So this year you have, we're basically, it's more time for people to congregate in the tailgate before gates open. So Okay, got yeah, you now. So okay. don't need to feel that rush because, you know, a lot of people love it when gates open and you can head in into the stadium. So we're going to create that big party outside before everybody heads on in. And if I can just mention too, we have a lot of new concessions this year. Uh, we'll be offering fish and chips. People will find more burger stands we've got turkey sausage shawarma con which is a huge hit at the stadium they're getting a bigger location this year because i know a lot of uh, that area around where their stand was was getting pretty congested so they've got way more space this year people will notice more beer carts along the concourse so we're really excited about everything that we're doing as far as uh, food and beverage go this year as well thanks for clarifying that for us michelle and uh, yeah it's up on us uh, as if may hasn't gone quickly enough it's <laughs> june 1st on friday yeah. home opener uh, the only home preseason game and then we get things going against the eskimos on june the 14th Yeah, and lots of tickets obviously still available. You can call us at 204-784-7448 for tickets. And season tickets, reminder, people don't realize how inexpensive it is to get into uh, season tickets. They start at less than $24 a game, and that is some good entertainment for you right there. All right, Michelle Lissa with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on CJOB. Thanks, guys. Breakfast with the Bombers, once again, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca. A better place for you. Mackling and McGarry on CJOB. We have a special guest on the phone with us. Mexico's ambassador to Canada is in Winnipeg for breakfast, being welcomed to Winnipeg by the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce. And the MBiz breakfast is going to focus on the Mexico-Canada relationship and the modernization of NAFTA. Dionisio Perez Jacome joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, good morning, Brad. Good morning, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your audience this morning. Well, it's wonderful to have you in our city, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, Mexico and Canada, I would say you could describe the relationship between Canadians and Mexicans as uh, uh, quite quite comfortable with one another as we have about 2 million Canadians every year head to Mexico on vacation. You don't know. T- I don't know too many people that have never been to Mexico, quite frankly. That's right. We have a great relation between Mexico and Canada. Um, As you were mentioning, more than 2 million Canadians visit Mexico every year. And uh, Mexicans are also traveling more and more into Canada. Last year, for example, uh, 360,000 Mexican tourists came to Canada. 
which is an increase of 55%. So if we look at the relation in terms of mobility, it's great. But also in trade, for example, we have been growing a lot. Um, and just to share with you a number, um, since NAFTA was signed, trade between Mexico and Canada has increased by eight times, which is a lot more than uh, what NAFTA altogether has increased. So the bilateral relation is, uh, is doing great. There are new prospects for investments, new cooperation projects in uh, academia, in research. So every, every sector I look at, we have um, something positive going on between Mexico and Canada. So what would a modernized deal for NAFTA mean for your country? Well, we believe and we, we are certain that NAFTA has been very beneficial for the three countries by um, increasing trade, um, increasing investment, jobs, and, uh, and prosperity for, for the people. A modernized NAFTA for us would mean um, bringing up to the 21st century the agreement. This is an agreement that was uh, negotiated uh, over 25 years ago. Obviously, many things have changed in these last uh, years. We have an opportunity now to bring it up to speed and to update it. Uh, for example, all the technological ele elements, the digital trade element, what has happening in energy, there are new sources of energy now um, available. So these are just some examples of how we can update uh, the, the agreement. And on the other hand, uh, we would like uh, the agreement to continue um, making North America the most competitive region in the world. Uh, we want to maintain the preferential access. We want to make also the agreement more inclusive um, so that everyone profits from it. Th these are the objectives that we are seeking in the, uh, um, in the modernization of NAFTA. Denisio Perez Hecome is Mexico's ambassador to Canada. He's in Winnipeg. He joins us now. And Mr. Ambassador, when we talk about Mexico, uh, it's not just beaches and sunshine and, and uh, clear waters. Uh, Mexico has a very young uh, population. What is the at the core of Mexico's economy? Well, indeed, we have a young population. We have um, over 125 million people in Mexico. Um, it's a very dynamic uh, economy. We have uh, been um, developing our manufacturing industry in a very important manner. Um, just to share with you uh, a number, we used to export back in the 1980s. 80% of our exports were energy-related. That is oil, basically, oil uh, uh, produced in Mexico. Now, 89% of our exports are manufactured uh, products. So we have a vibrant um, manufacturing sector. We have also, as you do, an, a very important agricultural sector. Um, by the way, we are complementing each other a lot in agriculture, um, um, exporting fruits and vegetables from our side, importing grains, importing canola seed and pork and, and other things from Canadian side. So we believe in the complementarity of the agreement uh, in the region, and Mexico is ready to, to continue playing its part. You mentioned manufacturing, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I know that the rules governing cars, automobiles, have kind of been a persistent thorn in, in these negotiations. The Americans are looking to stem the loss of manufacturing jobs to your country, and I know that's a view that Canada shares as well, uh, given the, the relatively low 
wages of workers in Mexico being one of the main sticking points. So um, can you comment on that? Well, the auto sector, um, in my perspective, is a sector where we can see the the benefits of the integration. Uh, We have different parts of a vehicle being manufactured either in Canada, in the U.S., and in Mexico. Um, There are certain cars that, uh, for example, um, require auto parts to move across borders up to eight or nine times before being assembled in the final vehicle. So we are taking advantage of um, the different uh, um, uh, competitive advantages that the countries have to to manufacture a good. The way we we look at it is we're not just selling cars in Mexico to the U.S. or Canada. We are manufacturing together as North American the the different vehicles, and that's what what is making competitive. Um, The automobile is a very important uh, sector, as you mentioned. Um, it's uh, being negotiated right now, and we are placing a lot of importance on that particular topic. Mexico has made recently a, a proposal, a counter-proposal to what uh, was um, presented uh, by the United States. And just to share a last uh, data of this integration, every car produced in Mexico um, has, uh, in on average, $5,500 U.S. content. That is parts produced in the U.S. that were exported to Mexico and that are now used in Mexico in the production of the car. And on the other side, every car produced in the United States has $3,800 produced in Mexico. I know uh, these numbers are very similar also for the Canadian side, and it just shows the level of integration. Mr. Ambassador, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me in the program. I appreciate it. Mexico's ambassador to Canada is Dionisio Perez Hakome, being welcomed to Winnipeg by Manitoba Chambers of Commerce, the MBiz Breakfast, focusing on the Mexico-Canada relationship and modernization of NAFTA, is happening this morning at the Fort Garry Hotel, and the ambassador will provide brief comments during a formal speech starting 30 minutes from now at 8.25, followed by a sit-down conversation with Chuck Davidson, who is the head of the Manitoba Chambers. Yeah, very much appreciate uh, that insight. Uh, to Mexico, lots of lots of interesting facts there. The the conversation will continue in the negotiations with NAFTA, and you can only sense that the relationship between Mexico and Canada is growing, no matter what happens with these NAFTA negotiations. Y'all ready for this? Kelly Moore is here, six eighty CJOB Sports Director, Sports Guru, NBA Finals. We're going to talk about the Stanley Cup Finals, of course, but I do need to ask. What is happening in the NBA Finals with two teams going to the Finals for the fourth year in a row? Has that ever happened? No. In any sport? Uh, Well, I don't know about in any sport, but in the NBA, you have not had the same two teams meet in the final for four consecutive years. It happened four out of five years, twice, back in the late 50s and the early 60s. Well, Boston had a run where they were in 10 yeah. straight finals, the Bill Russell years. Uh, you know, but again, there weren't as many teams back then either, but still, that was a, a streak of excellence. Boston played the Lakers four out of five years in 62 through 66, and then the old St. Louis Hawks from 57 through 61. Go Hawks! Go I Hawks! Remember the yeah. Hawks! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, this so this is going to be something new and uh, or, or something familiar, if you will, uh, having the same teams meet four years in a row, and of course, Golden State has won the first 
two out of three. So we'll see if Cleveland can even uh, the score starting Thursday night in the Bay Area. Can I say something, Caddy? You know I'm not usually doing uh, stuff like that. But uh, the St. Louis Hawks, a team that actually moved to Atlanta. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) 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 So a team that moved from Atlanta uh, to Winnipeg, of course, the Winnipeg Jets uh, lost to the Vegas Golden Knights in the Western Conference Finals. Lots of fans lamenting the fact, how do you lose four straight games to an expansion team? Well, if you haven't figured it out by (laughs) now, there may only be four or five games left for you to get your head wrapped around the idea that the Vegas Golden Knights are actually a pretty good hockey club. Yeah, I think you might be the leader of that pack trying to get your head wrapped around that because I know you walk in every day. This morning, the first words that greet me, God, only three more. (laughs) They only need three more and they're going to win. First thing I said to Kelly, (laughs) if you can believe that, they only need three more wins to win the Stanley Cup. It was, I, I only watched the highlights this morning. I did not watch the game, uh, but it looked as though it was an incredible game, uh, game. And that fourth line of the Vegas Golden Knights, including Winnipeg or Ryan Reeves, doing a lot of the damage. Yeah, you know, and in game five against Winnipeg, you know, Reeves had kind of a fortuitous deflection, if you will, for the game winning goal. But last night, he showed some pretty nice hands and uh, wrapping home a rebound. He went shelf daddy, top roof daddy, I think they call it, uh, over the right shoulder of uh, um, Braden Holpe to uh, tie the game. And it came a minute and a half after Washington had gone in front. Sound familiar? Jets fans? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this Vegas team, they're not a Mirage. They're not a Bellagio. They're not even a Venetian. (laughs) Well done, Kelly. They are the real deal. (laughs) They really are. And, you know, and their number one line contributed earlier in the game. Carlson and Smith both uh, scored goals, but it was that fourth line. Ryan Reeves and then uh, Thomas Noshek, who played for the Calder Cup champions last year when he was in Detroit system, uh, showing a little bit of that championship pedigree last night. Beautiful one-timer off the right post to put Vegas in front to stay. The odds, by the way, of the Vegas Vegas Golden Knights winning the Stanley Cup prior to this season were 500 to 1. So if you threw down 20 bucks, that'll get you a $10,000 payout. And you know what the Vegas bookies just before this series Mm -hmm. started were willing to pay $10,000 for anybody who put down, I think it was $100 uh, before the season started at 500 to 1. Yep. Because they figured, well, 10000 bucks will cut our losses rather than having to pay fifty k. So, nice. Yeah, so they're trying the to negotiate. The way they roll in Vegas. Well, you know <laughs> that number's gone up this morning. Now oh, that for sure, the, yeah. The VGK are uh, one win closer to that very unlikely Stanley Cup. Tom Wilson, is he going to be around uh, for the next couple of games? Once again, uh, there's been lots of conversation yeah. about this hit on Jonathan Marsh's show. Cheap hit. There's no doubt you could go one steamboat, two steamboats, and then Tom Wilson arrives. And that's two steamboats too many in my books. And the fact that he's already served a suspension, repeat offender, he's going to have a hard time with a plea bargain to the Department of Player Safety. Usually when we hear about drones, it primarily has to do with privacy issues, Brett, has to do with, you know, people flying them around airports and approaches to run ports and uh, airports and and runways. And of course, we are continually captivated by the amazing views that these uh, flying, these small remote control flying machines are able to capture with uh, the aid of high definition cameras. Uh, But to imagine them as war 
And uh, war machines is maybe something that's not necessarily been on our radar. Yeah, only in uh, in TV. I've seen it in television shows, and the first time I, th- I saw it, I thought, well, that's neat from a fictional perspective, but they, they've gotten it from somewhere, and somewhere in the real world this is happening. So Mike Armstrong, Global National Correspondent, joins us now live on 680 CJOB to talk about drone warfare, jamming, and how it threatens... Canadian troops. Mike Armstrong, good morning to you, sir. Oh. Well, it's pretty much happening in conflicts all around the world, actually. So tell us about how these off-the-shelf drones that you or I could go to Best Buy or, or a hobby shop and purchase some of them for a couple hundred bucks or less and modify them to become a weapon of war, Mike. Yeah, it doesn't take that much. As a matter of fact, there's already been an ISIS manual found with instructions on sort of how to modify them, how to, how to make them, how to give them a, a longer range as well. Uh, so you're able to turn to, to spend several hundred dollars or thousand dollars and make something uh, that basically rebels or insurgents would have only could have only dreamt about uh, years ago. I mean, you go back to 2011, Libyan rebels bought a drone. Uh, for their fight against Gaddafi that cost $100,000. And now they're able to get smaller ones for basically nothing. Now, is there any benefit to having a drone? Like, I'm thinking, for example, if you can send a drone out that carries bombs, does that almost eliminate the need for fighter jets and for pilots who would be at risk? Well, I certainly... Uh, the U.S. is doing that, uh, saving people the trouble of going out in planes. And, and uh, But the way that uh, insurgents groups are using them, uh, originally it was sort of a propaganda tool. They'd, they'd take these DJIs and uh, use them the way we use them to get cool pictures, and, and they'd be making propaganda videos. Then they started to be used for surveillance, sort of to give them uh, more operational awareness so that you could know where the enemy was. Uh, we saw that a ton in Iraq and Syria uh, more and more. And then basically over the last couple of years, they've been uh, putting grenades on them, which, you know, if you, you've got a, a flying, think about it this way, in Afghanistan, IEDs on the road were a huge problem. Now, those IEDs can be flying at you. I mean, it's a completely different situation. The IED depends on you coming to it. This is the ability to deliver that improvised explosive device to a specified target, Mike. Yeah, kind of scary, isn't it? It really is. So this is such a huge concern that the Pentagon, uh, you know, was great at spending money, but I don't think they're spending $700 million lightly unless they believe this is a serious threat to the safety and the efficiency of their military. Around the world, anti-drone measures and systems are literally a billion-dollar industry. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of civilian, uh, there's an importance for civilians uh, protecting airports, things like that, but also the military is about half of that industry uh, going forward. It really is something that they're worrying about, whether it's uh, droning, excuse me, jamming drones or shooting them down. Um, But shooting them down is pretty expensive. If you look at what's going on uh, with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, you've got rebels uh, trying to take out the Patriot missile batteries so that they can shoot missiles at the Saudis. But they're trying to take the batteries out um, with uh, these with small, inexpensive drones. But the Saudis are using Patriot missiles to take them down, which cost more than a million dollars. So you can, you can spend a thousand dollars and the enemy's spending a million. You mentioned jamming. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I kind of have an idea of what that might be, but uh, maybe I'm off base. So what are we talking about when you say jamming? Yeah, well, 
the, the reason we sort of picked this story up was something that happened in January in Syria. Uh, the Russians were, were, they have a base in Syria, Air Force Base, and they were hit by 13 drones. Uh, these were not sort of uh, DJIs or something like that. These were, uh, they, you should see them. They look like flying lawnmowers. I mean, they were homemade uh, things that, that went at the base, and a bunch of them were shot down, uh, and that, that made huge uh, headlines. Then what happened is they started using their jamming uh, capabilities. They've actually got these vehicles that appear to, they're called the Groza 2, and they appear to be in theater uh, there in Syria. And they, they're able to sort of aim and protect an area. And then the Americans came out in March and said that they have surveillance drones, so these are the ones that are flying much higher, that were flying around Syria and they suddenly lost contact with them. None of them were, were damaged or anything, but the jamming of their drones has affected operations in Syria. Mike, this is a fascinating story uh, and it raises concerns in my mind. I know it's not a part of the story that you presented with us, but it has to raise some concerns in terms of domestic safety and domestic security as well. I was I was with somebody this weekend, uh, and we had a big conversation about this. And he he knows a heck of a lot about this. And he was saying, "You don't understand what's going on with technology and how it's changing, and in the wrong hands, what it what it could mean here." I mean, if you're in theater in Syria and you're dropping uh, one grenade on some on on a group, that's that's terrible. But if you're dropping an explosive on, for example, a crowd, um, basically going forward, every event's going to have to have more protection, protection that we don't even think about, because you can do a lot of damage in, with, with one of these things. Mike Armstrong, Global National Correspondent, thank you very much for joining us this morning to tell us about thank this. Thank you. And you can read more at globalnews.ca. Drone wars, how off-the-shelf drones are changing the way wars are fought. The headline at globalnews.ca, cjob.com, what should be in new Air Passenger Bill of Rights, government launching consultations as the Transportation Modernization Act has been given royal assent and it will clarify airline responsibilities toward passengers. John McKenna is president and CEO of the Air Transport Association of Canada, joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Mr. McKenna, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you, sir. So why are we getting the opportunity to weigh on this now <laughs> when, when this has received royal assent and, and things seem to be more or less set here? Can you help us understand this part of it, John? Yes, of course. Now, the bill does not include any of the details. It mandates the Canadian Transportation Agency to develop regulations to fit the bill. The bill does not include the, the regulatory details itself. It's just establishes that these need to exist, and now we go through the process of developing them. Okay, so, so, so we've declared our intention to create this bill, and uh, what goes in it, the fine print, the I's, the T's, crossed and dotted, are up to uh, consultations and, and uh, what the government comes up with, fair to say? That's right. The CTA has been mandated to do this, and uh, it's a government agency, and they are, they have they're probably going to develop them over the next few months, and we'll probably some, be something, see something early in 2019 come into effect. So Transport Minister Mark Garneau announced yesterday the government is launching consultations to get input on what obligations and standards should be placed on airlines when it comes to treating passengers humanely. Are the airlines not treating passengers humanely as it stands? Well, every airline has its own set of 
what we call tariffs, that they're operating rules that they've deposited with the government and the government approves them. But they're not unilateral. They're not they're not the same for everyone. They're whatever the airlines have proposed, whatever the government's decided. Now, these would all be basically become the same one and the same for all carriers through this bill. So does the fact that, that that operating an airline finally seems to be something you can make money at play into this? Because I think for a long time, people were just thankful to have the service and to be able to get from point A to point B. But with all these onerous sort of rules and regulations, not only from Transport Canada as it pertains to airline safety, but, you know, charges for baggage and increasing delays, etc. It feels as though the relationship between the public and the airlines is one that's shifted over the last two decades or so? Yes, well, yes, it has, because uh, travel has become a part of life, a daily part of life, as compared to a luxury. So that's changed the mindset of many people as far as air travel is concerned. So last year, I think we all remember the, the video of a passenger being injured and then dragged off of a United Airlines flight, and after that, there were a bunch more videos that were released and uh, I guess, is it safe to say that that was one of the, the main triggers for this set of events uh, from Garno? Well, I, I think that the, the department's been wanting to develop uh, passenger protection regulations for a long time. Uh, this type of sensational events really just spurs the public on to, uh, to, to really demand action from the government. The quote there have been a numerous number of incidents, not, unfortunately not... Uh, only very few is uh, as bad as that one. Well, and I think uh, the thing that st- sticks out for me in terms of uh, Minister Garneau's statements yesterday says when Canadians buy an airline ticket, it has to mean something. And all too often we're hearing stories of people getting bumped off flights, whether it's domestically or internationally, and, and really turning these people's lives upside down uh, with with very little recourse. Yeah, well, let's not... Take it out of proportion. Roughly 140 million people fly in Canada every year, you know. So uh, there—that's the number of, of, of passengers boarding planes, and the number of incidents is infinitely small compared to that. So unfortunately, when they do happen, they make the news and they're very—they're very sensational. So it's not a problem, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. So the legislation uh, would lay out a framework for monetary penalties that can be levied against airlines that mistreat or, or fail to uphold standards of responsibility they bear to passengers. As it, as it stands right now, are there any sort of legal ramifications or penalties that can be levied at airlines if they, if they don't treat their passengers correctly? Yes, this is what's included in what I mentioned earlier, their tariffs that they tabled with the government and the government has accepted. This law will make those tariffs the same for everyone. So you will have, you know, people will know, and it'll be easier for the passenger to know how to find these things, what, they, what they're entitled to as compared to digging into, dig into each airline's, you know, set of rules. There'll be one set of rules to everybody so it'd be easier more user friendly for the passenger and hopefully those rules and regulations and those uh, rights will be printed in in uh, font uh, larger than three mr mckenna 
Yeah. <laughs> I hope so for my own sake. Yes. Well, you know, our concern is that, you know, it's it's good to compensate people, but the compensation has to really reflect the uh, what you what you had to endure. You know, I mean, if the compensations are ridiculous or ridiculously high, that's only going to drive up the price of tickets for everybody, you know. And we're we're concerned by that. I'll give you a simple example. Two of my brothers flew back from Paris last year. Their flight was delayed by 24 hours because of a mechanical issue. Well, not only were they given hotel rooms and, and, and fed and everything, they were given each compensation of $900. They paid $800 for the round-trip ticket, you know, and they're saying and they got $900 for one one day delay coming back. So if you if you keep doing this kind of stuff all the time, it's just going to drive up the price of tickets for everybody. Uh, we have to go here. Did they get $900 cash or did they get a $900 travel voucher? They got a check. This is European law because the flight originated from Paris. It was European law, and European law is very generous. And uh, if a flight, the law applies wherever you're at. And uh, so this was like, you know, uh, like the whole plane that applied got this money. So you say, that's this, 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 this goes beyond being reasonable at one point and doesn't reflect the real damage that the person suffered. John McKenna, President and CEO of Air Transport Association of Canada. We appreciate your time this morning, sir. Thank you for your insight. You're most welcome. Thank you. All right, 856 on 680 CJOB. And indeed, sometimes it is, like, sounds like those guys, you know, they got to stay in Paris an extra day. Their trips were paid for. They got put up in a hotel, so they ended up making money, and they got an extra day in arguably one of the nicest places on earth. But there are other situations, like what happens if you're on a tropical vacation, and we've heard this before, where the airline goes belly up, or they alter their schedule, and, ah, you know what, your flight's canceled, and we're not going to be flying again for six months. So what do you do then? There's That's a situation where passengers do need to be protected and should be able to seek some kind of a recourse. I think most consumers believe that the, the harsher the, the damages uh, that can potentially be levied or are required, the more likely the airlines are going to treat you hum- humanely and not do some of the things like you just outlined, Brett. So last week, Greg, I don't know if you remember, but you say to me that... The owner of Wasabi and the owner of Chosabi yep. is getting ready to launch a third restaurant name, which is Choichi, yeah, which is I, going to be a ramen shop. And then I looked at you and said, I just went to Chosabi yesterday for the very first time. It was creepy how it all fell together. This conversation has been highly edited for language uh, because <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot more expletives in it because, uh, first of all, I was impressed that Cho was going down the road of opening yet another restaurant and the serendipity of realizing that uh, less than 14 hours uh, before I'm mentioning this to you, you were in fact in Chosabi. So it, it's just kind of a, we boiled it down to a Winnipeg thing. That's just what happens in this town. Yeah, and Cho Venavangsa is our guest alongside Roger Wilkinson. So Cho is the owner of Wasabi, Chosabi, and soon to be Choichi. And Roger Wilkinson is the GM of Chosabi. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So Cho, you've been doing this for a while now, Wasabi was the, the first brand that you launched, right? That's correct. When was that? That's um, January of 99. Wow, almost yeah. 20 years you've been almost at this. Almost 20 years, yeah. Where was the first location? Um, Osborne Village. So when that first opened, um, were you nervous that it would 
get off the ground because there's so many restaurants in Winnipeg, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, then I think there's only a handful, maybe two or three, I believe, uh, when we first started. Um, yeah, now it's like uh, maybe 120, 130 sushi restaurants and still, still, I guess, popping up um, every day. Now, you then you opened what I think a lot of people consider a landmark location, not only just for your brand, but overall, not only for just for sushi, but we were just talking off air. You opened, other than Edward Carrier, who's across the street from you, you opened it in a neighborhood that really, when we were growing up, and you grew up in the north end, I grew up in the west end. For both of us, we knew Langside, Spence, <laughs> those were no-go zones 25, 30 years ago, and now you've got these very chic. Uh, different retailers and restaurants in in a neighborhood that was forever and a day, a place you just didn't want to go day or night. Yeah, How did you know this was going to work in that neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to give a lot of credit to Edward for uh, for this. Uh, he's the one who brought us there, you know, um, almost 20 years ago. You're absolutely right. There's no go zone then. But now it's it's um, it's coming around and it uh, it's a great neighborhood to to be in. You know, you see kids running around now down the streets. Um, uh, it, it's safe. It's totally uh, becoming a hipster neighborhood for sure. So you've got three wasabi locations, the one on Broadway, there's one at on Taylor, and then, as you mentioned, Osborne Village. And then along comes Cho Sabi and Roger Wilkinson, GM of Cho Sabi, of which there are three locations for Cho Sabi or two? There's three of them three. right now. Uh, we have another two opening up this year. So, um, so currently we have one in the exchange, one on Portage, one on Pemina, and then we're opening one up um, in the Seasons Outlet Mall. Okay. And then also one on Taylor, right by uh, the Boston Pizza and Orange Theory. So for those who are not familiar with what Cho Sabi is all about... What do you serve there? Uh, sushi, burrito, and poke bowls would be our main uh, main dish. What so, was the second thing? Poke bowl. What's a poke Not to be bowl? confused with Pokemon, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> everybody thought it was a Pokemon when that was the big thing, actually. So poke bowl is just uh, basically a bowl of goodness, some some marinated fish or tuna, uh, sorry, fish or um, shrimp or tofu, and then some wakame salads, just like Japanese-style seaweed salad, rice uh, salad, um, and wakame and delicious, yeah. I had the Chosabi burrito. Uh, I can't remember the ingredients. I just remember it being all kinds of delicious. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners what's in the Chosabi burrito? Uh, so we have salmon, tuna. Um, we have uh, tempura flakes, some rice. We have a full sheet of nori that we roll everything in. Uh, avocado, which is what's great. What's that? Nori? You said a nori. full sheet. It's uh, seaweed, basically just the, the way I'm saying seaweed, sheet of seaweed. Okay. Um, it's good marketing to call yeah. it that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to call it seaweed. It just sounds off, right? You know, so, um, for some people, yes. And then some wasabi mayo and uh, roll it up and then cut it in half and there you go. It's a beautiful package. So, Cho, then why do you think that uh, there's, like, because you, you, now you're growing by leaps and bounds. I didn't realize you were growing, opening two more restaurants, but Choichi, actually, let's focus on that. Uh when people think of the word ramen, I associate it with those cheap <laughs> bowls that you put some boiling water in and throw it in the, or throw it in the microwave or whatever you want to do. Um, and I don't know that I've ever even seen it in a restaurant. So what inspired you to, to launch this? Well, you know, uh, ramen has been around for years. Um, there's about maybe 40,000 ramen shop in Japan alone. And um, if you're, you know, if you're a college student, you're a university student, I'm sure you know ramen is, right? Mostly instants. 
So at Cho Ichirame, uh, we're um, doing everything from scratch. Um, we have, we're going to make noodles fresh every morning. So our machine should be arriving shortly from Japan. You're making the noodles in shop? Absolutely, oh. every morning. Uh, our, new, our soup base are, consists of the two types of soup base, um, pork and chicken, which takes about between 6 hours to 12 hours to actually make the soup broth. Um, everything's made from, from, from scratch. And then can I add other things uh, onto the noodle and the soup base in order to make it a little more gourmet? How does it work? Absolutely. Yeah, you can customize your own. Um, you can either go spicy or um, there are three types of soup flavors, uh, soy sauce, uh, sea salt, or miso paste, or uh, spicy paste. And your toppings, the choice of uh, chicken or um, pork belly. Then you mm. have Japanese mushrooms, um, spinach, um, uh, um, sorry, <coughs> And some corn on top. When is it opening? Um, we're sh- our soft opening is uh, scheduled for June 8th. Oh, and what's the location for that? Um, 1151 Pemina Highway. You don't have enough uh, paint in your hair or on your hands to Ooh. be uh, that close to a soft opening for a restaurant. You must have good contractors, Cho. <laughs> Actually, I was there last night painting. <laughs> 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 around, around midnight. Yeah. Uh, been there, done that. <laughs> it would be around the clock renovation to, to get <laughs> open, right? Because when you start, when you announce a date, people expect you to be open and soft or otherwise. I can remember doing my first soft opening with, with tables that were the the paint was still wet <laughs> on some of the tables, and we couldn't use them. And you, you know, there, there's there's timelines that are very strict in the restaurant world that I think a lot of people uh, don't understand. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, if you talk about business wise, I guess it's cash flow, right? You gotta you gotta open the door. <laughs> We're talking about wasabi, chosabi, and soon to be choichi, choichi. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get Cho's last name as good. <laughs> Vinavongsa, how'd I do there? That's perfect. Cho Vinavongsa and Roger Wilkinson, who's the GM of Chisabi, joining us here. We were talking off air about the challenges of the restaurant business. There are many. Uh, one of those obstacles is hiring quality staff. And Roger, mm-hmm. you said something to me that resonated with me right away. Part of my philosophy when I was in that world years ago. Yeah, it's uh, basically, you know, we can train anybody to do anything. We just look for a great fit for the team and a, and a positive personality, and that's it, and that's what we're looking for. And uh, it's proven its worth at Chosabi. We've had people right from day one that have stayed with us, and, you know, we have a great crew over on King Street and uh, really blessed to have them. And what so. about at Wasabi? I understand that you've got some long-serving staff members there. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're pretty blessed and we're pretty lucky. Um, you know, we have guys that's been with us since day one, like Raymond, Andy, uh, Rojan, and Jane. Um, since 1999. Since 1999. Wow. Yeah. Now, it says a lot about you as an operator, Cho, and, and you as a manager, Roger, to keep people. Uh, my saying in the restaurant business was good people are hard to find. They're even tougher to keep. Oh, yes, definitely. Right? Because yeah, you invest a lot of time and energy and a lot of money to, to make good people and just to have them taken away from you <laughs> yeah. could be pretty frustrating. So what's next? What's next? Uh, beyond Manitoba, maybe? Oh, yeah, well, I guess. Uh, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, let's see how it goes from here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're just having fun, um, you know, doing it and um, bringing new ideas to, to Winnipeg and um, trying to put Winnipeg on the map. Mm-hmm. So, Cho, you, you now have six restaurants, soon to be seven, eight, nine. I think the, if my math is correct. Um, 
When, how do you decide which one you're going to hang out at, at a, on a given day? <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> well, whichever which one needs help the most, I guess. So that's where I hang out. Wherever yeah. the hottest sake is. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> and I understand as well that you don't just want to open restaurants in Winnipeg, but you kind of have a dream to open one in Hawaii, do you not? Yes, mm-hmm. that's fully my dream retirement uh, um, job, you know. Um, I thought the point of retiring was to not have a job. Well, you know, you, you just can't sit on the couch all day long. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, I, I like, I love people. I like chatting with people. I mean, that's probably a perfect job. You know, four days a week, maybe six, seven hours a day. And <laughs> that's retirement. <laughs> yeah, that works. I can see that. Just open yeah. for lunch or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't golf all day. <laughs> yeah, you can try. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the sun does, does go down eventually, yeah. right? Folk fe- Festival as well, guys? Yeah, yeah Folk Fest this year is going to be... Uh, Crazy, just like it was last year. So um, we're more prepared this year and hope to have a great time for sure. Maybe you can lure uh, Cheryl Crow into being an investor in that uh, Hawaiian uh, venture of yours because uh, she's going to be here. I can't well, wait to see her. Oh, really? Yeah, well, maybe I'll hit her up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's a good, you know, we, we talk a lot on this show as well about pairing uh, alcohol with food. If I go into a place like Trosabi and have a sushi burrito, what is a good uh, what is good to pair with as far as drink is concerned? Uh, I would say sake for sure. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, some white wine. What yeah. is sake? Sake is a rice wine. Yeah, it's the same alcohol content as wine, 14%. Uh, it's made from rice. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> it just comes it sure hits me different than the traditional wine. <laughs> um, and uh, one final thought, too. I, and I get Roger, this is... Uh, you mentioned the good stuff. I was at the King Street location, mm-hmm. and I got there just before noon, and I was okay. waiting to meet someone. Yeah. It was nice and quiet when I got there, but within like five minutes, like clockwork, just yeah. 20 people walked through the door, but yeah. it was run very efficiently. Great. Is that one of the reasons why I think people come back? Because you reference your good staff, and you just run a, night, a nice tight ship? Yeah, you know, um, everybody knows exactly what they're doing. Like I said, they've been there from day one, and um, we put trust in them, and they trust in us that we're going to... Uh, you know, do what's the best for them and, and help them through whatever they need. Uh, also, we go above and beyond sometimes as well to help our staff out. Like, if we have to write a reference letter or something for them, then we'll do that as well, and they appreciate that sort of stuff. So we appreciate them and appreciate back, and it's great. That Thanks. relationship with the customers is huge at lunchtime. Yeah. Guys, yeah. great great to see you. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. We got a text here from Jeremy who says, you guys can't have a show about awesome food this early in the morning. <laughs> Not fair. Wasabi, Chosabi, and soon-to-be Chokichi at 1151 Pemina Highway, the soft opening scheduled for the second week of June. Cho Vinabongsa is the owner of these restaurants. Roger Wilkinson is the GM of Chosabi. Who's that lady that's on the TV, talks about finances? Von A- What's her name? Oh, oh! You're talking the one who like who is a real tough love kind of yeah. get your life together sort of thing. Van Axley or oh, I can't think of her name right now. Text it to me seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight or do some Google foo for me, Brett. Okay. Um, I'm feeling anxiety whenever I watch her show, and I'm feeling anxiety right now with our guest in the studio. She wants to talk about organizing <laughs> for your oh. life stuff. Are Just, you a mess? Oh, come on. Who isn't, right? I mean, we have too much stuff. In every room of our home, we have too much stuff where we have one room where all the stuff goes and you simply cannot find it. 
hopefully Jane Stoller can help us out a little bit in terms of uh, getting organized. Yes, that's right. She is the founder of Organizing for Your Lifestyle. She has a book, Organizing for Your Lifestyle, Adaptable Inspirations from Socks to Suitcases. And uh, she joins us now live in studio on 680 CJOB. Jane Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. So the, the first thing that I, I wanted to, to tackle here, because we, we talk a lot about emotional and mental health, and you might not initially connect the dots between being organized and mental un, mentally unwell, but as we've discovered just in our very quick chat, it kind of affects all of us in, in our own way. So why is organizing important for your mental health? And that's a great question and a good place to start because everybody kind of always says to me, oh, I need to get organized, right? And then when you start chatting with them, it actually is a big stress in their life. Like we were just chatting about how, you know, one pile can sit there for four years and you look at it every single day and you think, I have to do this, but how do you start? So if it, um, you know, I can't speak of the depth of mental health or stress that it can lead to, but on um, certainly everyone I've met and spoken to, it has caused some stress in their lives. So that stuff or their disorganization or just the lack of time they have to deal with it or where to get started is mostly the biggest challenge I find. Gail Vaz Oxlade. That's correct. Sorry, that just oh. came to me. So, <laughs> Gail Oxlade, she uh, she used to have a TV show till debt do us part. And oh, she I remember would, that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember. And it's it. like if I went on this TV show, I'd be so roasted, and I could only imagine what would happen if you came to my house to help me organize. Because you know, I've got concert T-shirts from 1987, 1984, <laughs> right? You know, I have them in totes, and they're nicely stacked. Yeah. You know, but it's it's my sort of. Personal vault of of memories, yeah. But as my grandfather used to call it, sort of an illness of not being able to get, get rid, rid of, things. of physical things. What is that illness? Why hoarding? Yeah, but yeah. why? Why? What's the at the core of that? Well, that's a good, really another really good question because um, you know, I just last year I did the same thing with my mother and gutted her house, and it's that emotional attachment to things, right? And even stuff from her grandmother and from my grandmother, we we are attached to these because they're things, they're possessions, and they do bring us memories. And I always say, like, you have to organize for your lifestyle. And you know what? If your lifestyle, if you went to a lot of concerts and that that brings you joy to look at those every so often, it's okay to keep them. But if you can find them and look at them and then kind of have a place for them, right? So I'm not saying get rid of everything and it's um, it's a problem. But what brings you joy or what's useful, those things you should be able to keep and um you know, having a special place. There is a limit, however. You can't keep every single concert t-shirt <laughs> probably if they're overflowing in your house. But kind of say, you know, does this bring me joy? Is it something I'm going to look at? And what memory does it bring me? And then have a system to organize it. Jane so. Stoller is the founder of Organizing for Your Lifestyle. Uh, Jane, I, I'm a bit of a hoarder as well, but I'm also a, a procrastinator. And uh, I'm, I'm actually sort of stressed out about a situation I have at home right now because oh, no. I had... Uh, a pipe sort of burst inside my wall in my apartment. So they had to come and kind of punch a hole in the wall. And uh, in order to do that, they had to pull everything out of my hall closet beside the washroom. So I've got crap sort of scattered all and stacked all throughout my apartment. I was actually shocked at how much stuff I was able to fit in this tiny closet. Yeah. But the work's been done. It's now been a couple of weeks. The work's done. They patched the wall. They fixed the pipe. Everything's been repainted and all that. But now I have to go out and go home and deal with it and figure out where everything goes, and I don't want to. So how do I get started? 
So for me, that's like the most exciting thing hearing you. I just want to go over there and organize it. Up. <laughs> but for most people, other than you know people like me, which is not very often, um, it's a, the getting organized is the the first place. Like the, is that's the hardest place to start. Where do you start, right? So. Um, you, I always suggest maybe talking to somebody or, or like myself or a coach or someone that can actually say, let's get started together. What's your goal? What do you want this to look like, right? So start saying, okay, what can I use this space for after it's organized? So start kind of visioning those goals and then set aside an hour a day in your calendar to work on it. Just something small to kind of get you started and not overwhelm you. But having a support team or somebody to help you with this might be a good way to start, too, or somebody to keep you accountable. You're going to say, okay, I want this to be done by the end of June. Hold me accountable to that, right? So support systems are always a good way to go. Is Rubbermaid my partner or an enabler? <laughs> Very you, good question. You know, they make these great, <laughs> these great containers for organizing things, uh, but it's a great spot to hide stuff too, right? Well, I, I talk about that a lot in my book actually too, is the container store and like we can shop all day for things to put things into, but then are they actually things that we're going to use or that bring us joy in the end? So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, I'd say, right? But it's um, we need them, but don't overdo it with getting too many um, bins and containers to put things in you'll never use, right? So that's kind of um, my motto. Mm-hmm. You mentioned just set aside an hour a day, just something yeah. small. But what if you're kind of like, and this is going to be weird because I just talked about how I have sort of crap everywhere and I feel like a slob, but when I actually get started in doing things, I don't know if OCD is the right thing, but but doing it an hour, like starting a job and then not finishing it that day would also drive me nuts, which I think is probably why I often don't start things because <laughs> because I know I'm not going to finish it yeah. and then I just leave it. So do you have any tips on how to deal with that to be able to just say, okay, I'm done for the day. I'll deal with this tomorrow and try not to worry about it. You know, that's a, another interesting point too, because that's a personality type too. And, and um, maybe... Maybe it's best if you say, look, I'm going to take two days off and just only focus on this and get it done because it's that might be more efficient than for you than doing it only an hour a day. But again, you need to be committed to that time. And if you if you can't commit that time, if for me, having something in my calendar will actually make me do it. And then having they have these time blockers that I use often. So even a cube on your desk, say, OK, I'm going to do this for one hour. And then having that block stare at you, you're so motivated in an hour just to work, just to get it done, right? So something like that could be helpful just to say, just to get you started and thinking in those time blocks. But again, maybe it's a two-day thing and you need to say, I'm going to just take two days even off work and just get this organized, right? And that might fit your personality or your lifestyle more. Now, the subtitle of your book is Adaptable Inspirations from Socks. To suitcases, we had a chit chat about socks, and I, I mean, socks are the bane of all humans' existence anyway. <laughs> if you have a dryer and you, you know, they disappear, yeah. and uh, of course, I have kids, and now their feet are large enough that they can steal my socks. So forever, my socks are going missing from either the dryer or from my kids. Uh, but it gets as simple as, as just being on top of it sometimes, right? And and the fact that something as simple as socks can Start your day off on completely the wrong foot, pardon the pun. Well, exactly. And that's why, um, especially when I do organizing, like coaching, I say start with your closet because it's the first thing you see in the morning, right? And we were talking before about, you know, in the morning, especially getting up for early for work, having to find your socks and not being able to, it can stress and cause stress. It can make you late. It can, it can, that kind of sets the tone for your day. 
And socks are a fact of life, especially in Canada. <laughs> so, right. And we need to kind of have different socks for different seasons, so it actually adds more complexity. So something as simple as your sock drawer being organized can really, I say, set the tone for your day. Rotating those seasonal items, if you have space yeah. to do that, is that a strategy as well? I um, I always like to say it's, it's better if you can have all your items in one place, not in a storage locker, because then you might have too much stuff. But rotating them certainly by ease of use. So, you know, in the winter, you have your, your wool socks a lot closer than, you know, your your uh, light linen ones certainly will help. That's an interesting point that you just made. Uh, you, it's better to have everything in one space than, than having a storage locker. Well, I mean, in a perfect world, we would have a closet big enough for it all. But, uh, you know, when you have a lot of seasonal items in different places in a storage locker, sometimes you... It's a pain to get them, so you'll buy something else, or you forget you have it, or it's uh, you know you can even get damaged. So, I've seen a lot of people who have you know winter jackets. They they and there's too much of a pain to grab, so they just get something else. So it just accumulates more stuff. If you can see it on a daily basis and have enough room for it, this is my closet. This is space, and kind of adapt to it. It'll help kind of keep your um, keep you wearing what you have. It's also almost like a preemptive measure as well to prevent you from buying more, more getting yeah, more clutter. Exactly, because if you know what you have, you're not going to go out and say, "Oh, I forgot I had that," and then you bought it and you come home and there's too much, right? So, well, there's an actual limit to how much stuff you can have if you yeah exactly right? it's economizing space. Well, yeah. or if you every time brilliant. you buy something, you get rid of something else in your closet. It's hard to do, but I've tried to stick to that, and it's, and? it's kind of helped because I only have so many hangers. And then, and, and I have really nice hangers, so I'm like, I can't buy new hangers, so I always, you know, when I buy something new, I, something else goes. And usually it goes to either selling or to a good cause, so it makes me feel good, too. Jane Stoller is a name. Organizingforyourlifestyle.com is the website and the name of the book. Before we let you go, though, uh, not only are you an author, you're good at, at helping people get organized, but you're also launching a video game? <laughs> yeah. So I have another business. Um, it's called Fidelium Tech, and it's uh, I worked in the construction industry for 10-plus years, so I had a lot of experience there. And my partners and I are developing this video game to kind of bring real-world um, learning to the construction industry. So, you know, high school kids or younger or even older adults can play this and build their house and actually learn how, to, how the materials work, learn the engineering, learn the math behind it, and make it fun. So hopefully more people will want to get into the construction industry and, and already know something about it. Wow. I always yeah. have that conversation with my kids when they're building the Lego, yeah. you know, with staggering the, exactly. the lines and, and mm-hmm. the, how strong a wall could be and stuff. So when is this coming out? And can you please let me know when it comes yes, out? Yes, a lot of people are asking because they want their kids to play because it's better than other games that are yeah, out there, right? Yeah. So it's uh, there's still about 12 months until the, the the game is okay. complete, but the demo will be out soon, so I can email you one Please as do. well. Fantastic. Yeah. Jane Stoller, founder of Organizing for Your Lifestyle. That's the name of the book as well. Organizing for Your Lifestyle, Adaptable Inspirations from Socks to Suitcases. Jane, what a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for yeah, stopping thanks by. Thanks for having me. I'm Brad He's Greg, behind the glass Jerry, and Tristan Field Jones in for Chandelier today on 680 CJOB. And then-